0: Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman.
1: One of our most popular Chautauqua performers, as well as one of our most sought-after Speakers Bureau speakers uh, at Kentucky Humanities is our friend Eddie Price, who joins me today from far western Kentucky. Eddie, uh, it's good to uh, not only see you via Skype, but to uh, hear your voice. How are things uh, today in uh, in West Kentucky? Well, they're doing really well, thanks.
0: Um, I'll be farther, farther west tomorrow. I'm doing the uh, Kentucky Chautauqua program down in Uh, Princeton. So that's quite a few hours, couple hours west of where I am.
1: So tell us, uh, first of all, before we get into our our discussion about uh, Chautauqua and about uh, the Speakers Bureau, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, uh, uh, where you are today, uh, where you live, but also your background. All right. Well, I grew up in Davis County, Kentucky
0: Went to Davis County High School, Kentucky Westland College, and uh, got my master's in rank one at Western. I taught high school for 36 years. I taught at Hancock County High School, 21 years at night for Owensboro Community and Technical College history classes. Uh, I was always a writer. My mother was really big and father on uh Having me read, but I always liked to write. And so uh, I ended up, when I retired from teaching uh, in 1912, I had already begun writing on Winter's Landing. I'd actually started that in 2006, and it was published in 2012. And uh, Virginia Carter, who was previously before you, yes. uh, the executive director, she uh, read the book, and wrote a jacket quote, and recommended that I join the Speakers Bureau. So I did, and that takes me into schools. I'm not retired at all, and uh, uh, so it's just really been an enjoyment. I've won awards with my books. I've come out with a sequel to Witter's Landing called uh, One Drop a Slave, And it's gotten a lot of traction down in the South, uh, in Louisiana. I'm going back to do a lecture in New Orleans this summer. I've got a series of children's books, and I do puppet shows. And, uh, I mean, you never know what kind of costume I'm going to be in. And then I've written a book on uh, the Derby of 1913. And that goes along with my uh,
1: Chautauqua performance. Well, before we get to uh, Roscoe uh, Tarleton Goose, uh, your Chautauqua performer and, of course, a uh, real uh, Kentuckian from some time ago, tell us about your other books. Tell us about the two books that you've written and the series of, uh, of lectures or, or speaking engagements that you have, uh, especially something that you would take all the way to, to Louisiana.
0: Okay, well, the first book is entitled Witter's Landing, and it is set in Kentucky along the Ohio River, Breckenridge County, in 1811 to 1815. It begins in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's about a gunsmith that comes to Kentucky, and he learns to farm, and it's fraught with a lot of humor as well, because farming's not easy, and uh, you never know what to expect, Uh, It's got romance, it's got history, it's got drama, and uh, it's really, uh, it won the uh, Spirit of 1812 Award from the Daughters of 1812, Uh, it won the Gold Medal at the Reader's Favorite Awards in Miami in 2013 for Best Historical Fiction, and we're in a fifth printing with that book, it just continues to, to rock and roll. And then everyone wanted a sequel. And I thought, I just can't write a sequel because people want me to. But I began to look at what was happening in Kentucky after the war and the role that Henry Clay played in the American system and the tariff and um, the um, uh, economy of Kentucky. And Kentucky was just an incredible state. Uh, in fact, when Lincoln you know, went to war, he wrote his uh, friend, Senator Browning in Illinois, and said I hope to have God on my side but I must have Kentucky and so I, I do uh, give a, a lot of insight into Kentucky politics in the, next, in the second book The Governor Dies uh, Governor Madison and he is succeeded by what they would call acting Governor Slaughter and they tried to invalidate the election, the legislature did and they didn't do that and that's that's in the story. So there's a lot of neat uh, history that I, of course, I, I larded pretty heavy with history because that's what I
1: did. Eddie, you um, uh, well know uh, more than uh, many of us that uh, uh, in May, uh, when the foals are born, and uh, you see them romping across the bluegrass and in other places in Kentucky also, and there happens to be a, a little race. Uh, just uh, west of here. Uh, people refer to it as the Kentucky Derby. Uh, you know it well. You've uh, been to Churchill Downs many times. Uh, but I would venture to say, unless they've seen your Chautauqua performance of uh, Roscoe Tarleton Goose, a Kentucky Derby winner, uh, they wouldn't know too much about that character. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you tell us how you first. Uh, became interested in this jockey and uh, what real interest it uh, sparked in you about uh, the Kentucky Derby? All right.
0: Well, I was asked to be a jockey when I was 15 years old. I think I weighed about 88 pounds, and I was a sophomore, and my mother said, you're not getting on top of those big dangerous thoroughbreds. Uh, I rode. I had a a horse and rode all the time, and I had a man ask me if I would – want to try exercising horses uh, in Henderson, you know, at Ellis Park. But uh, I didn't do it. Mom uh, ruled, uh, overruled that. But I was a speaker's bureau um, speaker, and I was on my way to Greensburg to do the uh, War of 1812 program, and uh, I got a call from Pam Metz. Now, she, was a, um, she is a librarian at Katie's, and she said, I want you to come down and do your program. I, it's just a two day notice. Can you make it? And I said, Well, yes, I can. Let me pull over here. So I yeah. did and got the information. And she said, Bring your uh, son as well. And I said, I've got two daughters. What program do you want? And she said, Well, we want your Abraham Lincoln program. <laughs> I was like, Because. Oh. I'm about a, half, a foot and a half too short for that role. I said I could get stilts and a beard, but I did find I pointed her in the right direction. And uh, they said, well, you ought to do Chautauqua. And I thought, golly, who would I be? So I started looking up characters. And, you know, my wife said, well, you were asked to be a jockey. And I said, well, let me look, look them up. Well, most of the jockeys that won early were african American. And it really surprised me how many of them did. And I read the story of Jimmy Winkfield, the two-time back-to-back winner of the Kentucky Derby in 1901 and two, and was amazed. He was kicked out of joc- uh, of racing, being a jockey, and went to Russia to race uh, overseas and became a big star over there. So I kept looking, I thought, well, Eddie Arcaro, Eddie Price, uh, he wasn't really a Kentuckian. And then I found roscoe tarleton goose he was born on a little tenant farm outside of jeffersontown kentucky and uh his father uh, had been wounded in the civil war and had dim eyesight they weren't making much money so they moved into louisville and they scattered the little ones out to live amongst relatives Uh, roscoe came back and got a job delivering newspapers and then uh he started driving a horse and wagon, uh, delivering goods for a department store. And he liked it. And he would stop in at Bill Brown's blacksmith shop to warm up by his fire on cold, rainy nights. And he would pet those big old draft horses. And Bill Brown said, I need somebody to take these things to the stables and back and on winter nights, you know, and we'll rough, put the rough shoes on them. So Roscoe Goose began riding these big fat draft horses. And then uh, Bill Brown asked him, he said, well, why don't you come out and uh, I've got two horses, race horses at Churchill Downs. How would you like to be their exercise rider? So Roscoe, was, he couldn't sleep that whole night. He went out uh, and he saw the thoroughbreds and he said he was so used to riding those big, fat draft horses. Those little two-year-old thoroughbreds were skinny by comparison. But he learned how to ride and he became... Uh, a really good exercise rider and started racing, and he could move a horse up, that, that was the terminology, that you could take a horse that was an underperformer and he knew how to, to get them uh, moved, and before long he was, you know, uh, racing in California, Mexico, and uh, he was worried about the reformers, he called them, uh, the progressives that were trying to outlaw gambling uh, at the race tracks but Kentucky held on, and he would race in the 1913 Kentucky Derby.
1: And uh, he met a fellow there uh, at Churchill. Uh, tell us about Mr. Hayes. Well, he was
0: he had come back after winning the um, American Derby in Jacksonville, Florida, on a horse named Governor Gray. He came back and won the Bourbon Handicap He was the top rider. He was spring meet leading jockey in 1911, fall meet leading jockey in 1912. But they called him out to the mule barn where the phone was at that time. It was one of those candlestick jobs, you know, that you put up to your ear, you know, the earpiece. And Mr. Hayes said he had a promising horse that uh, he wanted uh, Roscoe to work up for the Derby. And Roscoe said, what horse? And he said, a big rangy colt we call Donnerail, and named him after our little Crossroads Village, a railroad flag station just north, northwest of Lexington. Roscoe didn't want to do it. He had heard that the horse was really a super performer, but then he, was, he would do terrible in the next. And one thing, he hated a muddy track. He said, well, when that horse you know, uh, was running on a, a wet track, you'd have thought he was trying to run on ice skates. <laughs> but uh, uh, in one race right before the Derby, it was a wet track. He came in dead last, 30 lengths behind the winner. But Roscoe worked with him. And uh, then Mr. Hayes lost his nerve because they were bringing in 10-point, the wonder horse, the number one horse in America from New York. August Belmont, and his entourage were coming in. Uh, to, you know, it was starting to get to be the big race that it is today. Roscoe was really excited about uh, racing rail He thought he could win. But then Foundation, the Lexington horse that had beaten Donnerail in every race that spring, came in and ran a trial time that broke the existing Derby record by over a second. So Mr. Hayes said, I think you better try to get the mount on 10-point. Mm-hmm. And another rider had already beaten Roscoe to it. So... Uh, Roscoe went back, and Mr. Hayes said, well, he's just not ready. Uh, uh, you can't race. And Roscoe, you know, argued and reasoned and finally told him, I can get you a piece of that derby. And uh, so Mr. Hayes said, well, if you're crazy enough to ride him, I'll, I'm crazy enough to put him in. But he said, you just just finishing the money. Don't you try to win that race. He said, we're not going for cake. We're just going for cornbread.
1: <laughs> and? What happened?
0: All right. Well, they got settled up. And, of course, at that time, uh, the record was 30,000 people. And it had already broken all attendance records. Roscoe got dressed in the hay silks. And I get to wear these. This is really neat. They were made for me by Becker and Dursky Turf Goods. When I did the research for this program, I was able to uh, uh, see the actual photograph, the, 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 the Silks that Roscoe won or wore and won in are in a safe place where I can't say where they are uh, on tape. But uh, I was pr- led to promise, you know, I promise to not tell. But we got the photograph and we got the silks made and I got the boots. My wife cut them down because back then they were half boots. And the ones we ordered were big, you know, knee, knee high ones and she dyed the cuffs the same color, and we've got the cap, and it's, it's all realistic. Well, Roscoe went out, and they made a big parade, you know, for the grandstands, and he in his reminiscences, he hears the Kentucky uh, song, you know, the national or Kentucky anthem, My Old Kentucky Home being played, but that wasn't played until 1921. But he, he was telling people that he heard it. Uh, they got to the end of the track, and they wheeled in perfect unison, the horses. There were uh, eight of them in the race, eight of them. Uh, and they had moved rail in from number nine to number five because of four last minute scratches. Now the gate then was two long arms. That, uh, it was a three inch strip of webbing that was attached to these steel arms that were hooked to a latch. And then they, the starter would yank a cord, <clears throat> the arms would fly up and the field was off. Roscoe knew that these horses were fast, and he had bet in his mind, he had an instinct that he thought these people were going to just open up and run the whole race as fast as they could. And he knew Don Rel, he'd worked him and said he has endurance, and the Kentucky Derby had been lengthened, and all the races those other horses had been in, most of them were, were shorter than the Derby. So Roscoe conserved energy, started out in six End of the first turn, Happy Buxton gave 10-point his head, and they rocketed out three links ahead of Foundation. Everybody thought it was gonna be a two-horse race. Uh, Roscoe just guided Donnerail toward the inside, and they headed into the back stretch, and then Foundation moved up on 10-point, drew almost even. Uh, nobody noticed when Roscoe nudged Donnerail up past Leo Charis into fifth place. Uh, the infield crowd then was just right up on the rail, it's not today, and they were waving their newspapers and their umbrellas, and Roscoe could hear them, uh, and into the last term, t- uh, turn, he knew it was now or never, and he said, you might not believe it, but Donnerail knew it, and he cracked that crop, and he let out what was called Chief Johnson's war cry, and that was a Mexican Indian he had met when he was yeah. racing in California, and it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. real loud." And said, a horse just shot out. And uh, he began passing horses like they were standing still. And soon all he could see was the seat of Happy Buxton's pants. And um, Happy was a scrubbing that horse for all he was worth, but he was done in. And right at the finish line, Donnerale surged ahead, and he beat the number one horse in America by a half a length.
1: And, and the odds were 91 to 1, the longest odds uh, of a Derby winner, and that uh, you have written in our description of your performance was a record that still stands.
0: Yes, it does. If, and we took the tour. My wife and I went uh, when I did all this research, and I went down to the records room and worked with Chris Goodlett, and he's in charge of the, the museum. And um, so then we, get, we had a dinner and we actually took the tour and Don Rail's plate was up on, uh, you know, on one of the paddocks and the guy said, does anyone know what, uh, uh he he's famous for. And of uh-huh. course I knew, you
1: know,
0: yeah. but, uh, yeah, it was a $2 bet paid off at $184 and 90 cents, which that was $1913. That was uh-huh. a lot of money.
1: So, in performing this, uh, when you go through, and I understand that uh, that people cheer, and uh, you wrote the other day in one of your evaluations that they applauded uh, when when went across the finish line and won, uh, w- what kind of response do you get from your audiences?
0: Oh, it's, well, it starts out, now, I, being a historian, I larded that program with history, and uh, when I was doing different segments of the performance, they kept saying, cut this out, cut this out. And, of course, they knew what was needed for a Chautauqua performance, and I take direction as well as I can, you know. And uh, so what I did, I uh, took all that information and put it into a, a book. Now, t- now, tell me what you add Oh, the, the applause. Uh, but as it ends, the book starts building. Roscoe starts exercising horses. He's got a lot of neat stories along the way. And I use tone and expression to build as I get toward the end. And then it ends with fireworks. I mean, I'm, I'm racing, I've I'm straddled a horse, you know, and I'm, I'm hunched down, you know, uh, and uh, I crack the crop and I let out the wild Chief Johnson war cry and we have won the Kentucky Derby! And people stand up. In fact, yeah. the other night at Montgomery County, they clapped for about, oh, I'd say 45 seconds after we <laughs> won. Yeah, and then, I talk a little bit about going over to the winner's circle and Mr. Hayes comes out and says, great, my boy. Great, great, great. (laughs) And he goes, I can't believe it. I felt like I was on a champion. Why is a champion? He just set a new Kentucky Derby record. Two minutes, four and four fifth seconds. And so then at the end, uh, I talk about sitting up on Donna and that crowd cheering their lungs out. And they had earned their place in Kentucky history. And, uh, that record of 91 to one odds still stands to this day. And they stood up and, uh, gave me a, a standing ovation at the end. And that's happened more than once that happened several times, which
1: is good. Did they have the triple crown then? Uh, did Donnarill go on to, to race or was, uh, was he retired after the Kentucky Derby?
0: He was not retired. He went on in his career. He won 10 wins, 11 shows. 10 places, uh, he was uh, injured in a race, they had to pull him up, and so he didn't win the other two legs, uh, but he uh, became a stallion for the U.S. Army, and then uh, in 1917, he was put away, you know, uh, put down, and so he didn't live to be a lot. he was born in 1910, he was a three-year-old cult when he won the Derby in 1913.
1: So what happened to Goose?
0: Oh, Roscoe Goose, He uh, his brother was killed in a racetrack accident in Latonia in 1915. Roscoe was injured again. He had broken his collarbone when he was a trainer or, or uh, he was an um, exercise boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he had another injury. So he retired in 1917. But he became a, an advocate for safety features Namely, helmets for jockeys, because his brother, they wore the little cloth caps like I wear during the performance. But he said, you know, the horse crushed his skull. So now everybody on the tracks today wears a helmet, not just the jockeys. He became one of the best known trainers in the business. He owned horses. Uh, He uh, mentored other jockeys. Uh, like Charles Kurtzinger, Triple Crown winner on War Admiral in 1937, Louisville's own Eugene James, and he even advised the great Eddie Arcaro. He was a purchasing agent for Colonel E.R. Bradley, a nationally known figure, and he made a lot of his money doing that, and he was a trainer for Kentucky's U.S. Senator, Johnson in Camden. So he, uh, he had a really, he was training all the way up until his death in 1971. Uh, I was a junior in high school going into my senior year. Uh, I don't remember him, but there are people still alive that do. And his niece, uh, Carla Grego, is the gift shop owner at, uh, or manager at Churchill Downs and she gave me some really neat stories about his later life that I can bring into the Q&A at the end of the program.
1: Did um, did he get as much recognition as Donnerhall as the horse or were you would you say they were equal in the uh, the fame and the notoriety that they both received?
0: I think he was more famous. You know, he was well-known in the business long after Donnerale was gone. He never won another Kentucky Derby, but he was known as just an incredible uh, jockey. He, like, for years, he was considered one of the top riders in America. And uh, Donnerale had these flurries of just brilliance and then, then not. And uh, Donnerale was a good, solid horse, nothing like Secretariat or some of the bigger-name horses. but. Uh, Neat to, to hear how he bonded with that horse, and uh, so um, that's. I would say he was much more famous, though. He was a millionaire at the end of the uh, his life. They found out he had well over a million dollars, and he had just come from nothing. And uh, he was asked to speak and people would joke and say, that Derby gets better every time you tell it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, he, he sounds like really quite a character. Uh, I talked to one guy, he's about my age, shoveled snow for Roscoe. And Roscoe gave him money for shoveling out his uh, walkways. And I've been in the house that's right next, it's just right around the corner from Churchill Downs. And hmm. it's on the Kentucky Historical Register. I mean, I try to get... Absorb as much personality as I can. And, uh, but then this guy that was shoveling snow did the exact same job about three weeks later and he wasn't paid as much. And he goes, What's well, the same job? And he goes, Yeah, but the snow is lighter. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so uh, but yeah. he had, he, one time he was not tight with his money. And right before that derby, Happy Buxton, who was on 10-point, who was favored to win, said, ah, let's lay down a bet. He said, let's all of us agree that whoever wins, we're going to party all night at the Seal Box with the winnings until the money is gone. <laughs> Roscoe said, I, I'll take that bet, because he thought he was going to come in second or third. And he said, this, there's no way I'm going to beat this horse. And so he honored that bet. And I mean, when he came in, his mother had waited up all night for him. And she took one look at
1: him
0: and said, there's the coffee. And he said he felt so bad that he would never do that again. So they said he was pretty close with his money. You know, he had to be because he came up from hard times.
1: Was uh, he uh, buried, laid to rest uh, in Jefferson County? Cave Hill Cemetery. Yeah. Is there a special monument there? There is. there's
0: oh, it's a, a marker yes uh, stone and uh, his mother was a sturgeon and I've talked with some of them they're going to try to get me next year for the sturgeon family reunion it's funny I've been all over the state I've been to Ashland and I've been all the way down to uh, you know uh, way far in the west you know with different programs but I've not been to Louisville with this derby program and uh, I had a talent uh guy uh, asked if I would do it, and that he never called back, you know, uh, and then uh, I had the Derby wanted to do it, but they charged admission, so, uh, you know, so they backed out last year. I keep hoping they'll they'll have me, and I feel like the libraries and the schools, you know, would, would benefit because on Black History Month, this is really, I've got a good message on how Roscoe befriended Jimmy Winkfield. And, uh, you know, when Jimmy was shut out and he he won over in Russia, then he had to leave Russia because of the Bolshevik Revolution. And he and a bunch of nobles went to Paris and his father-in-law bought him a big stables outside of Longchamp's racetrack in Paris. And Roscoe was an owner, trainer, breeder, owned the stables and was still racing. Then the Nazis came in 1940 and took all his wealth, you know, and uh, he had to come back over to America. Uh, and experienced discrimination all over again. Went back to Russia, uh, back to France, raised, and came back at age 79 for surgery. Mm. And he got the invitation to Louisville's historic Brown Hotel, where they were having all the uh, jockeys uh, come for a dinner. And uh, the, the doorman wouldn't let him in the front door. And he stood his ground. And I say, now, we jockeys, we wasn't noted for our size. Mm. And Jimmy was frail from surgery. He was just 79 years old. He stood his ground and he said, I will not go around back. You will let me in. And that doorman caved and let him in. And led they led uh, uh, Lillian, his daughter, and Jimmy to one of the big tables. And Roscoe looked over and saw that they weren't, uh, um, no one was sitting with them. So he got up and went over and talked with Jimmy for a long time and had him in the booth on in his box on Derby day. And the last known photographs of Jimmy Winkfield were with Roscoe Goose. And so that well, was really a, a neat. So I, I think that's got a lot of value for, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, schools. And uh, there was a lot of controversy about people having black jockeys in their yard. But I think that was a, a testament. You know, I guess if people are upset, you don't want to upset folks. But I think a lot of people don't know that most of the early jockeys were African-American
1: and winning. Well, that's not something that uh, people uh, know a lot about, but you tell them that in your story. We've been talking with uh, Eddie Price, one of our Kentucky Humanities Chautauqua performers as Roscoe Tarleton Goose, but also um, uh, a uh, certainly uh, well-sought-after Speakers Bureau member uh, on Kentucky history. Let me, uh, Eddie, just take a minute to tell people that You can talk about uh, the state of Kentucky after the War of 1812. Uh, Your other uh, talks are Homemaking on the Kentucky Frontier, the Cane Ridge Revival, the Great Revival that Transformed Kentucky, and then the Battle of Blue Licks. And I've seen a couple of those, including the Battle of Blue Licks and including your uh, performance of uh, Roscoe Tarzan Goose. And you are uh, a real asset to Kentucky Humanities. We appreciate your Your willingness to travel all over the state, and I would um, imagine uh, we can both um, say that you are uh, probably uh, one of the more popular, I would, without question, say in the top five of our performers, Uh, and um, you do such a good job of representing the humanities in Kentucky. Well, thank you very much. Eddie, um, we uh, wish you a good uh, derby day and uh, good luck uh, during this uh, Derby season. I'm sure you'll be asked to perform uh, this, uh, not just because Derby Day will have concluded, but uh, you will continue to do this. It's a great story. It's a great Kentucky story. We appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky's stories for 46 years. The podcast was produced and edited by Morgan Lowe. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.